Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I've got myself a new handle and it is at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, by the time she reached her 50s, author and poet Catherine Simpson and her body had gone through a lot together, from period pain and abortion, early menopause, birthing two daughters, to shaming and harassment. When a cancer diagnosis entered the mix, Catherine began to reflect on her body and all its trials and tribulations, which she documents in her book, One Body. Human Collective is a brand of what's become known as athleisure, the comfortable clothes we embraced through lockdowns, which now happily are a fashion mainstay. The brand promises to spread a message of equality and social inclusion. And I'll be joined by one of its founders and Paddy Smith, who has long been an advocate for people with disabilities to be reflected in fashion campaigns and beyond. And Bernardo's recently launched their big active campaign, encouraging children in classrooms throughout the country to think about their heart, body and mind. I'll be joined by Bernardo's wellbeing expert, Jenny Murphy. So what kind of health and wellness week did I have? It's been good. I took a few days off to head to Northern Ireland with my family. And even though it was a bit of a push, as it always is, to get everything finished and sorted before we left, I was able to completely switch off from work, which was great. We had a jam-packed few days. I'm even willing to admit and confess to you that I had a laminated itinerary, mainly because my husband had the machine from work. And it's actually quite a satisfying task to laminate, but I had booked so many things that I didn't want to have to keep checking my phone for the time or worse, forget something. So we went to the Game of Thrones studio tour, the Titanic Museum, the Science Gallery, the Giant's Causeway, the Gobbins Path Walkway. So there was a lot over four days, but it was a really good switch up. And um, myself and my husband were as much kids as the kids themselves were. And I hosted a panel for Revive Active before I left. And it was amazing to see how the health and wellness conversation is moving. On the panel, there was psychologist Alison Keating, career coach Angela Burke, author and entrepreneur Rosanna Purcell and nutritionist Sinead Bradbury. And each one in a roundabout way or with a different lens to where their expertise lies, they all pretty much said that Real health and wellness, well-being is about tuning in to yourself and seeing where you're at. Sinead Bradbury was talking about trying to ask yourself where you are on a scale of one to ten. So she works with elite athletes, many preparing for competition. And at that time, she said they'll be at a nine, but it's only short term for the competition because it's coming at a sacrifice of a more relaxed view on training and nutrition and spending time socialising all important to our overall health and well-being. She said 10 isn't achievable or you'd be so wound up trying to get there, you've defeated the purpose of health and wellness. But a nice 7 to 8 is perfect. And she said she meets lots of people who are down at a 2 or a 3. And they come to her and they want to know what to eat and how to work out. And they say they have a wedding coming up and they want to look a certain way. But she'll start as asking them, to simplify things, prioritise good sleep, drink more water, maybe add in a home-cooked meal, few extra fruit and veg, moving up the scale slowly, one move at a time in a very compassionate way. And likewise, Angela Burke spoke of adding deep breaths, a check-in every time you boil the kettle or go to the loo or get in the car, just at regular intervals, taking time to notice if you're stressed. 
And there was a mum in the audience who put her hand up at the end and asked how you were supposed to eke out time like that when you have two young kids. She had a one-year-old and a three-year-old that invariably ended up in her bed every night. But I think that's where you come back to meeting yourself where you're at with compassion. Health and well-being and trying to get there is never something you should beat yourself up about. But there's such importance in us prioritising time that is nourishing just for us. It's different for everyone, might happen at different times of the day in different places, but it's the principle of it and starting small and building from there. Everyone's family setup is different. Some are doing it with support, often alone. But the first conversation, whether it's asking for help or scheduling out the week, took myself and my husband years to do this and to get it right. We're still a work in progress. The first conversation starts with yourself, assessing where you're at and looking at what small tweaks you can make to move up the scale and always with compassion. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. By the time she reached her 50s, author and poet Catherine Simpson and her body had gone through a lot together, from period pain, early menopause, birthing two daughters, to shame and harassment. When a cancer diagnosis entered the mix, Catherine began to reflect on her body and all its trials and tribulations, which she documents in her book One Body. And Catherine joins me now. Catherine, you're very welcome to the show. Oh, it's great great to be on. Catherine, how was your relationship with your body when you were growing up, when you were a child into teens? Yeah, when I was a young child before puberty, I was really happy in my body. I felt really free. I felt I could almost fly when I was running. I was light and and I used to feel sorry for boys because they had willies dangling in between their legs. And I thought, I'm so glad I don't because I can just run freely. And then I had the awful shock of puberty and my body changing almost overnight. And nobody talked about it. So I ended up feeling quite ashamed because I didn't I couldn't express how I felt about these changes to anyone so I ended up feeling quite ashamed of of my body and therefore you know I I, and I got big breasts quite quite young as well so I thought I walked around with like my shoulders rounded and I wore big baggy clothes trying to hide I grew my fringe right across my face trying to hide you know all the time make make myself smaller make myself invisible and um and that carried on until I was about 17 or 18 and realized that I was attractive to men and then suddenly how I looked became absolutely all important, you know, being slim, being toned, being smooth, being, you know, not flabby, all the rest of it became absolutely imperative, but nothing to do with my health or my self-worth. It was about men. Do men find me attractive? Uh, and that led me down the road to the diet culture where I spent, you know, years actually counting calories. That was like my superpower. You know, I could count the calorie in any, any meal. Uh, which rather takes the joy out of eating. Um, But yeah, so I ended up just spending my life, you know, wearing too high shoes because I thought they were sexy, uh, wearing uncomfortable underwear because I thought they gave me a sexy figure, you know, not eating when I wanted to eat, not eating what I wanted to eat, all about looking attractive to men. And it took me a long, long time to realise that that was a confidence built on sand. And it's so ingrained, isn't it, that you just think it's, it's the norm. I mean, I only recently in the last couple of months went to um, my first sports massage and I was talking mm. about sometimes getting neck pain and shoulder pain. And she said, but you're sitting quite slouched a, a lot of the time. Mm. You're rolling your shoulders forward. And I think that's causing a tightness. So if you concentrate on, on pushing them back a lot more, 
over time that will go away. And Mm -hmm. just something clicked with me one day, like what you said. I think I started hunching my shoulders in to make myself appear smaller, which sounds mindless. And yet it just wove into the way I held myself all the time because that was the messaging. It's not even a conscious thing. Sometimes it is, but it doesn't have to be even a conscious thing. I was constantly holding myself rigid, either keeping my stomach flat because I thought that looked more attractive or keeping my shoulders in an uncomfortable position because I thought that made me look better. Uh, I thought that everybody had shoulders that were so sore that you could barely touch them because the muscles were so tight. I just thought that was normal. And I realised how very uncomfortable I was in my body for, for years, actually. And I never gave myself a break. I didn't think it was wrong that the backs of my legs, I could barely walk in flat shoes because my calf muscles had shortened because I was so used to wearing high heels and this sort of thing. I didn't think that that was unusual. I didn't think it was unusual, and I don't think it is unusual, actually, that when I got home from work, the first thing I did was take my underwired bra off because it had been digging in all day. You know, I mean, all these little discomforts and things that you just take for granted as a woman, really, or certainly our generation did, I think. And I mean, I suppose it comes down to intention, doesn't it? I mean, it's perfectly okay for women to enjoy wearing a a pair of heels or Mm -hmm. to prefer how something looks if they wear Mm -hmm. smooth underwear and there isn't that, you know, bump or, you know, visible Mm -hmm. panty line or whatever. But if it's coming from a darker place or a place of self-loathing, that's where the issue is. It is exactly exactly that. I didn't think I was good enough. So I thought I had to do all these other things to sort of mitigate the fact that I wasn't good enough. You know, I I needed to be taller. I needed to be slimmer. I needed to have longer legs. I needed to, you know, have a a more cinched in waist, all this sort of thing. But in actual fact, you look back at the photographs of yourself from 20, 30 years ago and you think, oh, my God, I was gorgeous. What on earth was I worrying about? Uh, But you just can't see it at the time. I I don't know. I don't really know where it, when it starts, whether it's, well, I grew up in the 1970s. And when you look back at, at the light entertainment of the 1970s, the sexism was absolutely endemic. And it was all about uh, ogling over attractive young women and um, ridiculing older women. Uh, now, why that made me want to be an attractive woman, I've got no idea. But I seem to think that that had value uh, Men's attention had value in that way. And I don't really know when I started to believe that or why, but it was certainly there right at the forefront. And the female body goes through a lot. You mentioned puberty there, but from menstruation to menopause, what was that journey mm-hmm. like for you? Well, I I had, um, well, I mean, periods, they were just, I suppose, normal periods, but that didn't mean to say that they weren't inconvenient, painful at times. And again, shaming, because again, nobody talked about them. And you were always really aware, um, you know, that if you were using sanitary pads, you know, that they were, they, they might rustle or they might show under your gym shorts or, you know, you might leak or something like that. So there was all this very intense self-consciousness going on and nobody talked about it even within a group of close female friends we never talked about periods it was as though we didn't have them and I don't think my daughter's generation are like that at all thank goodness I hope not um so that was yeah that left another lingering sense of shame there's all kinds of shame hanging around the female body when it's doing perfectly normal things um, but we, because we can't talk about them freely or because I couldn't talk about them freely, they became this sort of shameful thing. So then when I ended up going through a menopause early at the age of 42, 
I was so shocked because my mother didn't go through the menopause till 55. That was the only thing she ever told me about it, that she was 55. I never, she never talked about it at all. But so you're supposed to, well, I believed that you were supposed to follow the maternal line. So I expected to have a similar experience. But I was 42 and I couldn't, I couldn't really believe it. And it took a little while for the GP to really take me seriously. But then he, he um, put me on HRT. I don't tell anybody. I just felt so out of sync with my friends. Some of them were still talking about wanting babies. Uh, I already had my two daughters and I didn't want any more, thank goodness. But um, I just felt so out of step with everyone. I felt that I had I had stepped forward by a generation in one day. And I'd left everybody else behind, all my fertile friends. I'd left them all behind. And I was going to be this old wrinkly crone, you know, shriveling away in, in you know, on my own. So it just felt terrible, which is ridiculous. I mean, actually, getting rid of periods is 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 pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as long as you don't want as long as you don't want children, it's it's not a bad thing at all. But um, but that's I just felt terrible about it. I couldn't even use the word menopause. I told my husband that I was going on HRT without actually mentioning the word menopause. You're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna and I'm talking to author Catherine Simpson about her book One Body, A Retrospective. And language is so important, isn't it? And and being able to talk about these things, as you say, Mm -hmm. I mean, the Japanese look at the menopause as the heralding of a new chapter. And even when it comes to menstruation and periods, we should be talking about the positive side of things rather than Mm -hmm. just the pain, the mood swings. I mean, they're all there and, and, and should not be hidden away but there's also Mm -hmm. very positives if if everything is going well there I've heard it described now as your fifth vital sign because if there is a lot of pain you should go and and, and seek help for it you shouldn't have to just no tough it out because that's kind of the messaging that is out there how did you find the experience of getting pregnant Catherine you also write opening in the book about having an abortion and Mm -hmm. I think the expectation on women to want to birth children is almost as omnipresent as the focus on weight. What was your experience here? Well, I really, really wanted children. So I was putting that pressure on myself. Um, I could hear my biological clock ticking because I I had an abortion in my teens when it was just not feasible for me to pursue that pregnancy. But I think I was left, and I think it happens to other people as well, I was left with this lingering sort of fear that, that, that... as a um, sort of a judgment on me for having done that, I would then not be able to have children. I mean, I'm not a religious person, but I thought that, you know, fate might decree that because I'd done that, I wouldn't be able to have children. So I could hear my biological clock ticking throughout my 20s. And uh, I didn't get married until I was 30. And I didn't want to have a baby until I was married. So I said to the, the man I was going out with, I want to get when I was, I think I was 29, I said, I want to get married. I want to have a baby if I love you. And, uh, and I, you know, I want to marry you. If you don't want to marry me, please tell me and I can um, find somebody who does. <laughs> um, so he said, uh, yeah, OK, because he was younger than me, about three years younger than me. He had no rush, but I did have a rush because I knew I wanted more than one child. So um, so I was putting the pressure on myself to have children, really quite fearful that I wouldn't be able to and wanting to try in time to do something about it if I found it was difficult. Um, And I was very lucky that it wasn't difficult for me to get pregnant. It was pretty difficult giving birth because I think that's just the way it is for everybody, actually. But uh, getting pregnant itself was no problem for me, thankfully. 
And nearly mm-hmm. every experience you've told me about your body has involved shame, pressure mm-hmm. and failure. But your cancer mm-hmm. diagnosis made you view your body very differently. Can you put into words what that was like? Yeah, well, at first I felt a failure because of that, which it does sound ridiculous to say that. But I felt there was a certain there wasn't a level of um, embarrassment that how can I have got this so wrong? I'm 54. I eat the right things. I do the right exercise. I, you know, I do all the things that I think is, are going to allow me to live till I'm 100. And here I am with cancer at 54 when none of my friends have got breast cancer at 54. It really was a ridiculous uh, thought process, really. But that's how I felt at first. And then as I progressed through the treatment, I had um, an operation to start with. And then I had radiotherapy. I was very fortunate that I didn't have to have chemotherapy. Um, And then I had hormone therapy as well, which I'll be on for about 10 years. Um, So as I progressed through the through the treatment, I started to write it down because I wanted to find a book about uh, the cancer treatment uh, that would help me through. But I couldn't find one because they were all written um, afterwards, after the event. And so they were kind of brave uh, accounts, you know, and rather not sugarcoated, but a little bit that way. And I wanted to write the truth of the experience as I went through the cancer journey. So I started to write it all down. And as I was writing it down, it started to, I started to find echoes in my past. Like, for instance, when, um, when the radiotherapy burnt all my skin around the breast and all the skin started to peel and go terrible colours, it reminded me of how we used to tan in the 80s until we were really in agony. Um, so I started writing about that and um, the hormone therapy that they put me on one of the side effects is weight gain and that made me think all about the diet culture that I've been completely immersed in well until then I actually didn't realize I was until I started to worry about getting fat on the tamoxifen and then I realized that getting fat because of the treatment was only just behind the fear of dying of cancer and that shows how absolutely ridiculous the situation was that I was almost as worried about getting fat as I was about dying uh, and that really brought it home to me that when that really when that realization actually sank in I thought oh my what have you been doing and I realized that this almost like a well a fear of food really you know it would be the first thing I thought about when I woke up I've never been diagnosed with a, an eating disorder but my thinking has been very dysfunctional I think about it first thing in the morning I'd, I'd worry about it last thing at night full of regret for what I'd eaten. I'd start listing the food that I was eating during the day, abandoning the list when it got over 1,000 calories. And all this nonsense started to resent going out for meals because I knew it would upset the calorie count. I mean, it's just nonsense. Yeah, you know, it's such I a was, waste of our time. And I, I, you know, I often think... It's such a waste of energy. If we weren't thinking about that, what else could we achieve exactly. in our lives, in our worlds? Or even if that was just achieving contentment and inner peace, if... We stopped thinking about all that nonsense, as you call it, and focused on other things instead. Well, Catherine, thank you for writing the book and thank you for talking to me today. The book is called One Body, A Retrospective. Catherine Simpson, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for chatting. Human Collective are a collection of individuals who believe in spreading a message of equality and supporting social inclusion. They design Irish urban leisure clothing that's environmentally sustainable and socially inclusive. And I'm joined by Connor Buckley and Paddy Smith from the brand. Well, you're both very welcome. Thank you very much for having us on. Thanks, Claire, for having us. Can I start with you, Connor? When did the idea first come about? Like, what was the moment that this started? I would say if I was to pick a moment, it was probably... 
the 25th of May 2019 when George Floyd passed away. I think that really resonated with me. Um, I think that resonated with obviously a lot of black people, people all over the world. As the first time I felt that, I think the whole world came together to really support black people. Um, the Probably the second moment would have been, um, I had a baby boy on the 27th of March. And what happened there was, we've been trying for a couple of years and we'd been, uh, we hadn't been very successful. We hadn't been very fortunate. And when he came along, we were so happy. Lockdown happened. Um, so he was born on the 27th of March. Lockdown happened around the 17th of March. And it was this moment where, my, where I just stopped. Uh, my email stopped. I was working uh, for a hospitality company and it was, it was insanely busy. And it stopped. And I really thought about um, the little person that was in our lives now and how uh, I wanted to spend more time with him. And then also... How proud of my mum I was and of what she had achieved. She was a campaigner and activist. Her name was Christine Buckley. And she went on to, to great things in the sense of um, she set up a, a centre for victims of institutional abuse. She exposed all of the abuses in the church. And I felt that I wanted him to be as proud of me as I was of her and as of my dad because my dad's amazing as well. My mum gets a, a lot of the, the credit and she deserves it, but my dad's amazing too. And I, I felt that I wanted to be wanted this man to be as proud of me. So I really wanted to do something with a real purpose and I wanted to give something back. And that's why it was really important for us to link in to support charities. It was important for us to do something where we felt like we could help society in a sense. And now I think those two moments came together. Yeah, this gives me chills. I'm obsessed with this. This is change maker territory, which really is a, a big fascination of mine, how we see something, we feel something. But who are the people that take it that step on? Because we often all feel motivated by something and it's really hard to know where to channel that. So when did you decide it was going to be a leisure brand, that that was going to be where this message was going to come through? Yeah, good question, Claire. Originally, it was all about spreading the message so I did a little bit of work on Instagram I don't really speak on Instagram I don't I don't speak on Instagram for Human Collective or on my personal one but I talked a little bit about my own experiences and I got a really good response from it um, and then I was started doing a bit of inv- interest investigation work so I spoke to um, lots of different people in the community from the LGBT community from the black community and I guess from all these immersive ideas I felt like there had to be something that we could do to I guess where you know do you know the expression wear your heart in your sleeve wear what you believe so I saw a, an educator called Jane Elliott in America she's an amazing lady she's probably about 85 86 now uh, she started doing uh, talking about inequality back when Martin Luther King had passed away she's a white lady and she she had this jumper on that said there's only one race the human race and I felt like that was such a simple message, but it hadn't really been said enough. She talked about how race was a social construct, how it had basically been ju- set up in 1500 to justify slavery. It was a bit like Bitcoin in a sense. In order to, uh, it was it was manufactured. Uh, sorry, racism was manufactured. And I felt that, so she had this jumper on that said that, but it was very loud. And I said, well, no one's going to wear something that's very loud. So I wanted to do something that was quite subtle and that everyone would feel comfortable. And that's why on our jumpers, we have a very subtle equal sign. And it's a reminder for people about equality, but it's also a reminder that we're all human. And it was our first, it's our first step. So we've, 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 a, we've a strategy behind that. And it's, this is our first step in a subtle message being on your clothing. And we wanted to see what the public support at the start. So we had no idea. We launched in November 8. And we wanted to see what the public support it. And we've been amazed by, as much as we've looked at the data, that 
every single age group has supported us and, and has bought the jumpers. And that's amazing to see that people are really standing by what they believe and wearing this um this the equal sign. So we have it on hats, we have it on jumpers, we're bringing out t-shirts. We've been very fortunate that businesses like Brown Thomas are looking to bring us into their stores. And and I guess aligning ourselves with Brown Thomas, we've been very lucky with some of the, and, and Paddy's done amazing work on this. Some key people in Ireland have talked about it. So we've got very lucky to have people like Amy Huberman, Laura Whitmore, Brezzy, all wearing our jumpers and talking about the brand and lots of other people as well. Um, yeah, because people talk about fashion being frivolous, but actually it's a really powerful vehicle for you to spread a message. And I think it's it's worth pointing out that three euro of every jumper sold goes to the three charity partners, Sports Against Racism Ireland, LGBT Ireland and the Irish Youth Foundation to support their work in tackling inequality. So not only are you spreading the message, but you're also giving back. Paddy, when did you come to be involved? I kind of just called me up. I had interviewed for Connor years back. He never gave me the job. <laughs> and then he came crawling <laughs> back. But yeah. I obviously stuck in his mind. Um, and I he actually, just... <laughs> I looked at my phone. We were looking for a corporate salesperson. I looked, type corporate sales. Wait, if I look for a marketing person, I type marketing. Because I've interviewed so many people over the last 15 years. And Paddy was there. Paddy Corporate Sales. And I always leave a note. And I went hard grafter. Because he told me some of the hard sales jobs he'd done. And we were getting lots of corporates asking for the jumper and lots of corporates asking us to do talks I went wow Paddy Paddy was remember he was telling me he had some tough sales jobs in the past and I wanted people who have got a good work ethic so I said I'll give him a call but I know Paddy sorry to interrupt you yeah. no bother Connor's like that he just <laughs> loves to talk Connor does <laughs> <laughs> I know I love him he likes passion in you doesn't he when you, li- yes. when, you, when you listen to him you're just that's why like I'm so proud to be part of this journey with him and like he definitely has a leadership passion and qual- uh, quality about him which is amazing but yeah he rang me up and, and told me about the job and I just was really excited about the ethos and the message behind it and also obviously Claire me speaking with you like you know we know each other quite a while like you know my whole thing is like changing how people see minority groups especially because I'm disabled myself and I just thought you know what he's allowing me to head a, a, de- a department and I'm a minority group in myself. And like, what's that going to do for everybody in my platform to see, to see that someone with a disability can head an amazing fashion brand that has a, like a stunning message behind it. Um, and I just really got excited by it. And I think one of my biggest things is if I ever get excited by something, like go for it. Even if I don't really know what I'm doing, I'll figure it out. Yeah, I love that. And this has been a message of yours for a long time. Why is somebody with a disability only pictured on billboards yes. to fundraise? Yeah. Why aren't they in beauty brands? Why aren't they in yes. festival ads? Why aren't they in fashion campaigns? And you have been smashing that. You've appeared in all three of those at this point, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, um, I don't know how, but somehow I've done it. Um, but yeah, it's been great. I just, I hate the concept that we're worthy and we're victims and like, you know, we need help from everybody. Um, I think that like we are in everyday life. We have dreams just like you. Um, you know, we want to go out and party just like you. You know, we want to wear clothes and look great just like all of you. So I think that is a really like driving force to me. And it's a driving force of like, I just listened to Connor speak, like his passion and his like, just the reason why he wants to do this gets you excited. And I think that's an amazing person to have in your corner. And I just, I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah. And I think with everything that's going on in the world at the minute, there are big shifts that are positive, but there are also big 
blocks that are tough to take on, be it the war, be it yeah. the climate crisis. But we don't want to be paralysed to inaction. We have to believe that there are things within our control Absolutely. and that we can make a difference. There's no point in doing absolutely nothing. So what are the plans? Where is this going to go? Because I know you are also involved in workshops and spreading the message in other ways. Yeah, so we've been asked by a number of key companies. We've done a number of talks for, for Google, PayPal. Uh, Paddy's done a great talk. He was a, he was an MC for Google's Festival of Diversity. So a lot of key clients have who I worked with in the past, but also new clients have, have um, asked us to either pr- provide products for them um, which is great, or to do talks. And we've got a great lady called Momobo Goro, who's um, a social psychologist and she's studying a PhD in discrimination and, and prejudice then the University of Limerick. And, and she's partnering with us in those talks. She's part of the team. And she's a really impressive lady. Every time you're around her, you just learn so much. Because we're learning as well. We're all learning. So the last thing we want to do, Claire, is come on and be very righteous and preachy because we're all in the same journey together. Um, some of us are a little bit further ahead than others. But um, she's I, really good at bringing facts. She brings facts to the table. Yeah. You know? And uh, me and Connie need that sometimes because we just love talking about our <laughs> own experiences. But she really has. Yeah, she's got that academic you know, approach. Yeah. Academic, and I even think in the health and wellness discussion here, if there's science behind it yeah. or statistics behind yeah. it, people are like, okay, yeah. I'm on board. So well, it is really important. Momobo's so impressive. Like she sent me this morning reasons why a diverse workforce is actually more productive. Reasons why diverse yeah. work, diverse workforce is more beneficial to a company, and she's got all the factual information behind that. So she brings that academic approach, which is which is great because I think Patty's got a, a, a an amazing story, and I think disability isn't probably spoken about enough. I think there's been a lot of support for the black community. I think there's been a lot of support for the there always can be more. Um, same for the LGBT community, there always can be more, and for gender equality as well. But I don't think people really talk about disability as much. Um, and that's why I think it's it's as Paddy said, it's great to have Paddy as a figurehead of the company. So because we really believe, and there's also scientific uh, evidence that if you can see it, you can believe it. So if you can mm. see people um, representing you as a person, whether you're a child, then you feel like you can achieve that when you're older. So th- that's I guess what we'd love to see. We'd love to see more people being represented. I guess from a brand point of view, we would love to see more. Obviously, people wearing the jumper and feeling comfortable about it. I think we've what we found is um, so when, when Paddy Kate first came on board, I didn't realize he was part of the LGBT community, and when when you have, I, mean, I don't know how he didn't. But... <laughs> 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 and, and and what was great about that, we also have we have obviously two other members part of the community is that when you've got a diverse group of people sitting around a table, everyone has their own insight that they can provide, and it really is amazing because everyone then learns. And I don't, again, I don't want to sound so philosophical, but it really does improve discussions about branding, it improves discussions about how we approach things, and it really grounds our values. Because if you have those core people in your team, and we're really, what we what I didn't realise, Claire, as we set this up, is how many good people would be attracted to the business because of what we're doing. So people like Michael Darren McCauley, people will probably know him for winning Eight All Ireland's for Dublin, but actually he does so much great work with the inner city community. And he's like spearheading a charity campaign we're doing for Ukraine at the moment. And when you have those good people in the business, it just makes everyone in the business better people. So that's what I didn't realise. I probably didn't realise how much support we would get as well. We've been really fortunate. People have been incredibly kind to us, not just our customers, but in terms of supporting us in terms of like a landlord and giving us free furniture. Um, So that, that kindness has really helped us as well. 
and then obviously corporates have helped us. Yeah, so it's coming from the heart and it's yeah. opening up other hearts because I know we said the stats are important but we need to get out of our heads and into our hearts but a bit also more. I want to say, Claire, we don't want it to be a charity jumper. Do yeah. You know what I mean? We want it to be a jumper that you would wear day to day and like you'd be proud to wear it rather than just like a charity jumper that you'd wear once. Do you know what I mean? So although... Like, that is really hard and that's a line we're trying to figure out. Yeah, that's a great point, Paddy. It's a really great point. We, Paddy and I did a, a call with a client the other day and they talked about putting their logo on on the on a Pride t-shirt for June. And we said, we've no problem with that if that's what you'd like to do. But this Pride, it can't be just for June. It has to be 365 days a year. April is Diversity and Inclusion Month, but it can't be just for April. It has to be for 365 days yeah, a year. Yeah, no, it's so true. And, you know, I hear Emma Dabry talks an awful lot about... We need to go from allyship to true coalition because yeah, we need to be looking. It's like you said, Paddy, yeah. you don't want to be part of this group that's pitied and every yeah. now and then we just give money to. Like that's not box. it. That's not inclusion. I mean? yeah. That's not seeing yeah. ourselves as one human collective, which I think is a perfect way for us to end. If people want to find out more, go to wearehumancollective.com. Connor Buckley and Paddy Smith, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much, Claire. Thanks, Claire. Bernardo's Children's Charity was joined by Paul O'Connell recently to launch a brand new school campaign, the Bernardo's Big Active. This campaign is designed to help students of all ages and abilities to be resilient in dealing with stress and anxiety and to take care of their physical and mental well-being. I'm joined on the line now by Bernardo's well-being expert, Jenny Murphy. Hello, Jenny. Hi, Claire. How are you? Lovely to be here. So the Big Active campaign has been a, a regular for Bernardo's as a, a fundraiser and a theme through schools, but it's taken a bit of a, a, a change this year. And I imagine it's well needed. Kids have been through quite a lot over the last couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as you said, Bernardo's have launched the Big Active supported by Aldi campaign and actually over 16,000 children have signed up so far, which is amazing to hear. Um, but you're right. I feel like this year it's kind of bigger and better than ever. And I think that's just a testament to what we're trying to do about children and parents' well-being, um, specifically in schools, I guess, because it's such an important part of their lives. Um, and so this year, the focus is really on connecting children to their body, their mind and their heart. Um, and that's done through a couple of different ways. But ultimately, um, we're asking children and schools to get involved in kind of doing physical challenges to take care of their body. And this is for all ages and abilities. So both primary and secondary schools. Um, and then we're looking at kind of mindfulness exercises, both kind of that mindfulness kind of being present in the moment, but also breathing activities to support positive mental health and well-being. And then also activities to kind of look at how we promote and um, support different charities in our communities and how we kind of understand how charities work and how best to um, understand where the money goes when we when we donate and things. So we're really trying to bring children and schools on a journey with us with this new campaign. I was contacted by Bernardo's a while back um, about voicing some of the training videos. And when I was reading through the script, my mind was blown at the language you were giving to school kids, things that I've only become aware of in my adult life. Like you're saying, the heart, body and mind, mm -hmm. there are going to be journals to encourage writing yeah. about our feelings. And 
it's just amazing language and concepts to just bring in at an early stage under the guise of fun. These are fun activities just woven through the school day. Yeah, I think that's so key about the the big active campaign and a lot of the work that Bernardos are doing now in our approach. And we very much talk about the connection between our heart, body, mind. And that's, you know, it's language that I think more and more children and parents are starting to understand and connect with. And so we really talk about the importance of that connection. And that means checking in on your own kind of emotional and mental health um, regularly, so daily, weekly. Um, and and that takes place, I think, a lot of the time in schools where we're able to talk about our feelings or we're able to talk about what's happening in our lives. Um, and we're also quite active when we're in school as well. So that body piece comes into it. Um, and then obviously, we're really trying to kind of help children um, to understand a lot more about, you know, charities and organisations that support vulnerable people. Because, and um, I think, you know, I think it's really important that we have a better understanding of when we donate where our money goes and what that helps with. Um, and so that's the kind of heart piece as well. But of course, the heart piece, when we talk about it in terms of heart, body, mind, is very much about being kind to yourself, being kind to others, the things that you do, you know, your self-love, um, which builds confidence and self-esteem. And so all of these things are so important for us to, to be teaching children um, and to giving giving them that language that hopefully they can really start to connect with. Yeah, and be able to see themselves as part of a, a wider community. And what yeah. is the definition of well-being as you see it, Jenny? Look, well-being um, is so subjective. It's certainly, you know, it means something to me, but it might mean something else to you and, and vice versa, you know. So it's it's so vast, I think. But ultimately, when we think of well-being, sometimes we think of, oh, it means that like I don't feel anxious or I don't feel stressed or I don't have any mental health challenges or negative emotions. But actually, you know, really well-being means that we're able to deal with life stressors or the things that life throws at us and we're building our resilience all the time and that we have tools to cope when life does get challenging and um, so it can be our emotional well-being how we able how we're able to talk about things you know how we can we connect with um, our feelings and emotions and then it can be you know our physical well-being in terms of you know, do we recognize when we are feeling stressed? Where are we feeling that in our bodies? Where do we hold tension? And what are we doing to support that? And that could be, you know, physical activity, or it could be mindfulness, or it could be breath work, all of those things, I suppose, help to support that. And then the heart piece, I think, really comes into the well-being as well, because when we feel good and connected to people and ourselves, you know, that increases our emotional well-being and so it's so important I think to to keep that heart piece in mind and when we give to others and um, that really really supports our, our well-being as well so it's hard to define it really isn't defined uh, very clearly in in lots of um it's kind of broken into so many different parts, I think. Um, but certainly for schools as well, it's a huge part. I think we spoke about this in the beginning that they are promoting well-being all the time now. It's a, it's a really big part of a daily school life. And it's something that, you know, they're bringing into their um, CSPE and in PE and in SPHG. And I suppose the big active campaign could really, really support schools with that. 
And I, I suppose a good way of looking at it sometimes is that it's and I, I saw it on your on your site when I was researching on the big active site, that it's not the absence of negative emotions, yeah. but it's learning tools to be able to handle everything life throws at us, because we do tend to think that when it comes to well-being, you have to be happy and energetic all mm-hmm. of the time. And again, that's a really important message to give kids that we don't feel like this all the time, but there are things that we can do, particularly around self-compassion, mm-hmm. emotional literacy, stress and anxiety tools that are just so important to embed in them and, and those behaviours now and those healthy habits. Yes, absolutely, Claire. It's so important to make that distinction, I think, that, you know, oftentimes we do think that we have to be walking around with our smile on our face all the time or we have to be feeling good all the time. And that means our well-being is really, really good. But in fact, we all um, deal with different challenges in our lives. And certainly for the past couple of years, we have dealt with something that I don't think we ever expected to. And we really still don't know the impact of that on children and on ourselves as adults, you know, so we're, we're, that's only kind of going to unfold as time goes on. But it's so important that we're giving these opportunities and these tools to support our um, growing youth to understand their own bodies, to understand, you know, how their minds are working and to, and to kind of be able to pull on these tools when they need them most. So in Bernardo's, a lot of our work is to do with helping children and parents manage anxiety and stress. And that can be simply um, to support them to be a bit more mindful throughout their day, to practice gratitude, to do some breath work, because ultimately when we practice those things, we become a lot more present in our own bodies. And when we're present in our bodies, we're far more able to kind of cope with what's happening around us. We feel more regulated. We feel more connected to others. And that all increases our well-being. And I also read that well-being is recognised now by the Department of Education. As you say, it's it's featuring a lot more on the curriculum because it is seen that we need these tools to be functioning adults. If you really bring it down to brass tacks, these are the people of the future. And to be a fully functioning member of society, these tools are essential. I think wellness, and I understand why our well-being has got a kind of a bad rap, as if it's Mm -hmm. just something that's emblazoned on the side of a mug or for a particular kind of person. But these are really key tools to help us navigate life with. 100% yeah and I think that's maybe why there's been a bit more of a buy-in I suppose in terms of these processes becoming more um, popular in schools and things and obviously them being more on the curriculum and perhaps even why we're recognizing it you know in different organizations trying to support it because if you think about it and I think I, I watched a mindfulness video recently where it said the one um deciding factor of you know somebody's well-being as they as they turn into adulthood is how they can regulate themselves and so how you don't learn that on a day-to-day basis in school you learn lots of really important things and they get you so far but ultimately if you don't have the ability to regulate your own body and to regulate your emotions then you're not going to be able to deal with life's challenges or you're going to find it a little bit more difficult and so 
the types of things that we're talking about in terms of what we're bringing with us in the Brig Active is to really support uh, children to have these tools that they can pull on at any time and to practice ways that work for them. Because, you know, mindfulness may not work for, for all children or breath work may not work for all children, but what does work for you? And let's take this opportunity to find out what makes you calm, what brings you peace, what helps you de-stress, you know, what makes your endorphins fly. Um, so it's all really connected, I think, to us understanding a bit more about what we need to teach children as they grow and develop. Well, Bernardo's want schools across the country to register at thebigactive.ie and get active to raise funds for vulnerable children across Ireland. Wellbeing expert with Bernardo's, Jenny Murphy, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Claire, for having me. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, Aidan McKelvey and Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk.